Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 55, A New Roman Republic and a Kind of a Crusade. Before we get into the episode, it might be helpful to just quickly go over the situation we are in at the moment. That is because we have entered, as we would say in technical terms, the very messy period of Italian history. This comes after the rather messy period, just before the highly annoyingly messy period, and way before the I give up and don't want to try and understand this stuff anymore messy period. We're in the early 1140s. In the south, the new Norman kingdom of King Roger II is struggling to be recognized by everyone. The Byzantine Empire, the Holy Roman Empire, the papacy, and the rest of Europe. Up in Germany, things were also messy. Emperor Lothar had died in 1137, but Conrad of the House of Hohenstaufen had not been able to be universally recognized, especially by the Bavarians. The Italian communes were still trying to find their bearings, and while they were at it, they were having a go at each other mercilessly, left, right and centre. Last time, we left off wondering what the Romans, as in the citizens of the city of Rome, were making of all this independent commune business. Formerly, they were ruled by the Pope. Now, we have seen that time and time again, the same old pattern was being followed. A Pope died, two or more factions would struggle to get another one elected. Sometimes, it would end up in violence, often. Other times, two Popes were elected. Then, Sometimes even more than two. Whatever the result was, the city was plagued by factional violence inside the city. And in this period, while they were carrying on, they were at war with the city of Tivoli nearby. The Romans, part of them at least, were really rather fed up with all of this. Some of them even had the very silly idea that the Pope was supposed to be a moral guide that heeded to his flock according to the teachings of the gospel. How silly of them, I mean. An anti-clerical feeling had spread and the desire for something new. So, when the whole commune fad came along, Rome was ready. Not only was Rome ready, The way they saw it, they had invented all of this stuff. The other cities were all measuring the start of their communal period with the election of the first consuls. I mean, really? Consuls? The Romans were doing that stuff more than a thousand years before everyone else. No, Rome went one step further. They had a little something called the Senate, which was actually still there. So... Why not go one step further than the other newbie communes 
and revive that old, useless creature? Now, we're still talking Middle Ages, so it's not like we're talking about universal suffrage democracy. You would have gotten the same reaction that Samuel Tarly gets in the last Game of Thrones episode. Let everyone decide indeed. One of the main forces behind the whole Senate idea was the Pier Leoni family. And it was one of their number, Giordano Pierleoni, who was elected as patrician to lead the new commune, or republic, if you will. This gentleman, incidentally, was the brother of the deceased antipope Anacletus. This was in the summer of 1143, after a summer of particularly heightened tensions and fighting. Now what about the Pope? He had been the political authority over Rome until that point. Naturally, he wasn't having any of it. Especially because the new administration was already acting as if they were running things. For example, calling Conrad of Germany to be crowned emperor in the name of the city and not the Pope. Claiming legitimacy from the ancient prestige of the empire. The Pope that year was still Innocent II, and his solution to deal with the new reality in Rome was to die on September the 24th, 1143. In the heightened confusion, electing a new Pope was not an easy matter. The Frangipane family tried, getting Celestine II elected, but he didn't even make it out of the family palace where he stayed in fear of the violence in the city until his death in March of 1144. His successor, Lucius II, was a bit more decisive in his opposition to the new Senate. He tried to have it disbanded, but they just reconvened. He then tried to ask would-be Emperor Conrad for help, but he was way too busy in Germany with his unhappy Bavarians. At this point, Lucius thought he would try and take things into his own hands. After all, the popes had their own militia. Why not use it? Well, that's what he did. With the support of the Frangipane family, based on the Palatine Hill, he moved on the Campidoglio, where the Senate was holed up and laid siege. It failed. The people of Rome reacted violently, and a few cardinals were killed. Lucius II himself was hit in the head with a stone. Unconscious, he was led to his bed and never woke up. He died on the 15th of February, 1145. It was during the papacy of Lucius that we can fix what was one of the most probably official starts of the Roman commune, relying on a document dated 21st of October 1144, which used the ancient wording Senatus Populusque Romanus, and set out the officials of the commune, or new republic, starting from the Patricius. Fifty senators, other sources I've seen say 56 or sometimes 60, but let's go with 50, would take their seats on the 1st of November and remain in office for a year. They were divided into 40 regular senators 
and ten councillors, which were a sort of executive branch, along with the patrician. They would take care of the issues such as city logistics, wall repair, markets, and organising the militia. They even went so far as to mint coins, with the papal denarii being substituted by the Senate Solidi. So we are up to 1145, and it is interesting that in the same year that the Roman commune got a new enemy, when the new Pope Eugene III substituted Lucius II, they also welcomed the man who would be seen as the commune's greatest champion, Arnaldo da Brescia. He had been born around the year 1190, and as the name says, he had been born in Brescia in northern Italy, east of Milan. He was ordained a priest at 25 and went to study in Paris with the great scholars of the time. He was a chaste and frugal man, possibly not too friendly and diplomatic, as many great reformers and prophets are. He got back to his city of Brescia in 1119 and started to preach his doctrine, according to which the church should return to the simplicity of the gospel, to renounce its worldly holdings and interests. More than in spiritual matters, he was interested in politics and his anti-establishment crusade. As you can imagine, the church authorities were not pleased with him mucking up their livelihood. And in the end, in 1139, the bishop of Brescia had had enough and Arnaldo was declared a heretic and forced back to France, where he showed up in Paris. His enemies, in particular Bernard of Clairvaux, did not leave him in peace and forced him out of Paris into hiding, possibly in Switzerland, where he may have survived as a tutor giving private lessons. This brings us back to our 1145, when he popped up in Rome, where Eugene III, as we have said, had been elected after the death of Lucius II. But Eugene had not been allowed by the crowds to enter St. Peter's and had had to flee to nearby Viterbo. Arnaldo was perfect for the situation. With his preaching of the division of church and state, he was the perfect representative of the new ideas of the commune. He put his great eloquence and oratory skills at the service of the new administration, preaching to the crowds on the Capitoline Hill or in the Colosseum, quoting Virgil and St. Augustine, and inflaming them against the greed and power of the high clergy. The people thus wrangled would then run out to attack some cardinal's palace. The Pope, now in exile, needed a way to save face, to get back some prestige. What better to do when you're in a difficult situation than launch a good old crusade? That's exactly what he did. The Muslims had obliged by taking back the county of Edessa, the first of the crusading kingdoms that had been set up, giving Pope Eugene an excuse, his casus belli. The crusade didn't have perhaps as many takers as the first, but it was the first to actually include kings. The first was Louis VII of France, 
who, contrary to the idea that French kings should only concern themselves with France, felt that he was a Christian before he was a Frenchman. He was very pious, so much so that it is said that his wife Eleanor exclaimed, "I thought I had married a king, but instead I find a monk in my bed." If the gossip is to be believed, it seems that she found satisfaction elsewhere. She was very much in favour of the idea of a crusade and encouraged her husband to go and take her with him, so that she could have a bit of an adventure. The other king involved was our Conrad of Germany, who, as well as being a sincere Christian, also saw in the expedition a chance to redeem himself and get some momentary reprieve from the constant civil war he was embroiled in. His rowdy vassals were all too happy to concede a truce to allow him to go off, hoping perhaps that he wouldn't come back. In 1147, at the head of an army of around seventy thousand men, Conrad made his way down the Danube. Along the way, they met the French contingent, which had a lot more hangers-on and baggage trains than actual fighting soldiers. The Italians were very few indeed. A small band of soldiers that accompanied the Marquis of Monferrato, who was really forced to come along because he was Conrad's brother-in-law. No other Italian forces were involved. Genoa, Pisa, and Venice supplied ships, but at a heavy price. Things did not go well at all. Conrad suffered a heavy defeat before he had even passed through Asia Minor. And the price asked by the Byzantines to ferry the French contingent was so high that they could only afford to bring a small amount of troops. King Baldwin the Third of Jerusalem took one look at what was left and declared that it would be impossible to take back what the Muslims had conquered. The Second Crusade had been a failure. The idea of Pope Eugene. To get back some popey boasting power, was crushed. It was a defeat for all Christendom, and in particular for the Church. The unification of France was set back for decades to come. Finally, Conrad had worsened his situation. He came back completely humiliated. The Hohenstaufen dynasty, and the idea of strong central legal power in Germany. Saw its darkest hour, destined perhaps to disappear into the chronicles of history. However, it is often in the darkest hour that a champion arises. You see, we didn't mention two members of Conrad's contingent to the Second Crusade. One was an interesting cultural note, i.e., a Florentine volunteer called Cacciaguida, from whom. Five generations later, a certain Dante Alighieri would descend. The other was a young nephew of the king, a young man who would lose his life in yet another crusade, who at the time of the second may already have been sporting a bit of a beard, a reddish beard. This young man would play a crucial part in the history of Italy and give rise to symbols that are still significant to this day. The young man's name was Frederick.
Thanks very much to everyone for listening. Next week I'll be on holiday, so it would be very unlikely that an episode comes out. After that, we'll be doing a special episode on the Partisan Republic of Montefiorino, and we'll get back to see what happened to Conrad, to Eugene, and to Arnaldo after that. As always, I would like to thank my Patreon supporters, the Garibaldi-level Ed, Jeff, Joshua, and Sean, the Matilda of Canossa and Giuseppe Mazzini-level Benjamin, Maddie, Mattia, Roberta, Scott, and YR, the Margarita Hack and Galileo Galilei-level Ben, Silane, Chris, Dean, Ignazio, Jay, Caitlin, Kevin, Shelby, Stephen, and Vincent, and the tippy-top Maria Montessori and Dante Alighieri-level Sen, and Paolo, who are now joined by our new Patreon supporter. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Reactionary Venetian, which is a really, really cool pseudonym. So, welcome to the family. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media, Facebook and Twitter, or you can look at timelines, lists of rulers, and maps to help you navigate our country's complicated history. Until next time, thanks again very much for listening, and arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.